Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to acclaimed Irish director Paddy Brannock about his latest series The Drive, about a woman struggling to stay sober, as well as his highly regarded movies Rosie and of course I Went Down. Does the world need a movie based on a fantasy role-playing game? We review Dungeons and Dragons in the company of Paula Wiseman. Plus, Andrew Legg, the director of the inventive new time-travelling movie, Lola. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. And it indeed, it is repeated on Sundays at 8pm. As a good friend of mine, Joe, pointed out recently. Do hope you're well and uh, April has greeted you well. It's April Fool's weekend. Don't worry. I am not going to do anything foolish. I have been, well, I can't promise that, but I'm not going to say something that isn't true as an April Fool or whatever. As someone who's worked in radio a long time, uh, behind the scenes for a lot of the time, I have been involved in many April Fool's radio pranks, and most of the ones I was involved in weren't particularly good. So there will be none of that. And uh, as I say, get in touch with me if you want. Email is screentime at newstalk.com, or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. I do get constant communications about the fact that I sometimes say movie instead of film, and I will make no apology for that. I use them interchangeably. You know, language is first and foremost a tool of communication. And as long as you're not offending anyone, I will use it any way I see fit. And and, and I like the term movie. You know, some of the first films I saw were movies in a way. They came from America and were made there. And the thing that fired my cinematic imagination was the movies as I understood them. So I shall continue to use the words interchangeably. And if you don't like it, you can... It's going to say something else. Switch over. Please don't, though. I need all the listeners. Now, on TV this week, I was watching this. Do not edit this. A lot of people knew. Because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. Spanish fly. The girl would drink it and hello, America. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this... More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. How do we talk about Bill Cosby? That is a show which quite obviously is all about Bill Cosby. This was on BBC Two over four weeks. Uh, now, it, it, it finished last week and I watched the whole thing. We need to talk about Cosby. And it's obviously all about Bill Cosby and his stupendous fall from grace for being accused of sexually assaulting and raping over 60 women. Now, a part of you might go, I've heard this story, you know, I'm not in the mood to watch something which is clearly going to be so depressing. And I guess that's your entitlement. You could also say, well, it's very important that you watch this kind of stuff. But Outside of that, and this is full of testimony of Cosby's victims, and they tell their story remarkably well and and, and are incredibly confident and brave and seemingly quite together women, despite what horrific things happen to them at the hands of this monster. But what's also very interesting about this is who Bill Cosby was in the American psyche. Now, this was four hours long, so it goes very in-depth. And it's directed by a gentleman I wasn't familiar with. He's a comedian and author and TV presenter. I did think I recognized his voice, though. W. Camus Bell, who, as I say, is a stand-up comedian and describes himself as a child of Cosby and grew up loving him. Uh, And what's really interesting in the documentary is what Cosby did for black America. Like, so for instance, in a TV show that he was on, I Spy, he refused to have white stuntmen 
paint their faces black, which is what used to happen. So he refused that. So he changed the industry in lots of ways. He kind of became America's black dad. And people in the show all testify this, primarily with the Cosby show. And a lot of people watched that in Ireland in the 80s and early 90s. And he seemed to be this paragon of black virtue based on that show. And there's some very eerie moments in this when you you refigure Cosby's career through the prism of what we know about him now. And so, for example, one chilling episode in it or, or, or part of it points to the fact that in the Cosby show, he was a doctor who treated women, pregnant women. And it's really eerie in his basement in the house. And it brings him close to kind of a Jimmy Savile-like character, as in someone who it appears may have been doing his entire career simply as a smokescreen. Uh, it certainly argues for that point. So I found this pretty gripping and devastating stuff to watch, but a, a powerful documentary. We need to talk about Cosby. Now, we it was on... BBC, so it was on the BBC iPlayer, and from what I read, it's on Paramount Plus in Australia, so it's not easily findable. There are ways of finding it, but I can't possibly endorse those. But uh, we need to talk about Cosby. It was a was a great uh, and intriguing and very upsetting, but as I say, powerful piece of TV. If you might have watched it, do let me know. Uh, if you want to enter the whole film movie debate, you know, if you if you feel compelled to, you can do that as well. Now, a show I've been enjoying enjoying immensely is The Dry, which stars Roisin Gallagher as Shiv Sheridan, who returns to Dublin after years of partying in London, and she's attempting to become and remain sober. But being back with family makes staying on The Dry much harder than she expected. As she tries to navigate this new phase of her life, so must her family, and they all have issues that they don't want to face. There's a great cast, which includes Pam Boyd as Shiv's mother, the great Kieran Hines as her dad, and most Dunford as a former boyfriend who's had a pretty toxic past with her in terms of the relationship. It's warm, it's funny, and it's a lot of heart in it. And occasionally it's a serious look at sobriety. It was written by the award-winning playwright and screenwriter Nancy Harris, and it was directed by Paddy Brannock, whose most recent movie was The Powerful Rosie. And of course, he gave us a movie you're tired of me talking about on this show called I Went Down. And I'm delighted to say Paddy joins me now. Paddy, good afternoon. How are you? Very good. How are you? Very good. Now, listen, you know, I, I alluded to it being a dramedy, I suppose. That's kind of a frightful phrase, but I think we all know what it means. As a director, is it is it hard to, to find that sweet spot between funny and, you know, pathos and seriousness? Because this is about alcoholism at its source. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is. I don't know if it's hard for everyone, but I, I definitely start off sort of with my list of greatest worries or greatest concerns around something and kind of gradually work to try and diminish them and get them into a space that I can manage. And and the sort of balance of comedy and drama and pathos in the show was the thing that concerned me. Could I get that right? Um, yeah. Because they, they can break each other very easily, but yet if they work well together, um, it's it's the sweet space that everybody loves to 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 be in and see. So mm. yeah, I think it's I think one of the things maybe where where I start off with is is making sure that we're not trying too hard, you know. And I think once it's like kind of being needy in a relationship if you're trying to make it funny and you're pushing too hard on something, mm. but at the same time, <laughs> if you yeah, at the same time if you if you kind of become verklempt and you hold back too much and don't go for the sort of exuberant moments, there's something wrong with that as well. So it's, mm. it's trying to go as close to the line as you can um, yeah. make that work to sort of deliver as much as you can without breaking something in, 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 the, in the tension of the piece. There's a very nice ending, let's just say. And I'm wondering... The fact that you, which is unusual in modern TV making, you directed all eight episodes. Do you think, obviously, that helped in terms of you, you know, being able to tell the arc of this story? 
Yeah, well, I think, I, yeah, it, it is unusual doing all eight. And also Nancy wrote all eight. And there was an ongoing conversation between us and the producers um, about this, where the show was going and how we would refine things moving towards shooting it. And so there was a great coherence among us all and a great sense of where it should land. And I think being able to calibrate that and sort of know that you want a very specific feeling or specific tone in that last moment, but you've known that from the first episode, help, helps you kind of go there as elegantly as you can. And um, yeah. also, I think it's funny, though, even I love the end, actually. I love endings generally, and, um, and it, I love this end. And in it, there was something I knew what I wanted to get, but even then, uh, Pom Boyd gives a certain look at the very last moment. And I, I couldn't have explained it to her. I couldn't have directed her to give me that look. It was just something essential, indivisible that she did at that moment that really buttoned mm. the show. You know, it, it yeah. was fantastic. So even in spite of your best efforts, sometimes you, you also want to go beyond what your idea is, that somebody else has to yeah. bring something else, you know? Yeah. The cast, as I say, is great. Kieran Hines is wonderful in it. And, you know, he's kind of, you know, like the Mount Rushmore or something. There's just the, the, the way he looks. He has this kind of presence uh, and you believe anything he says. But he does some very comic things in this. And there's one particular scene I won't spoil, but let's just say he's in an alleyway and we see more of him than we might expect to see. Did you always want him for this? Yeah, he he, you know, Look, he, he's just a fantastic actor. I, I've been kind of lucky as well. You know, a lot of the things that he's done have, have been kind of, you know, very serious roles and very uh, sometimes, you know, in Kin recently and stuff like that, he plays a gangster and he can play that sort of hardness and coldness very well. But I'd been lucky enough to see him and, and I was on the periphery of a film that Conor McPherson did called The Eclipse. And he's quite funny in a couple of scenes in that. And there's even some slapstick comedy. And I knew, so I knew he had a great range um, and also, you know, great, could bring great depth to the piece. So look, he's, you know, he's a fantastic actor. You'd be, you know, the chance of working with him is, is such a thrill, you know. Now, I should say for listeners, it, it finished airing in the traditional fashion on TV last week. RT were showing two weeks, but it's all available to watch on the player. And you should do that because it's a great piece of TV and it's Irish, as I always like to say. And it, it's very good. And the ending is great. And, you know, people are making comparisons to Fleabag and stuff, rightly or wrongly. But I, 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 can, I can see the resemblance. And I hope you don't, I hope you take that as a compliment, Paddy. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's part of, you know, there's a genre that they call, I think, the messy female or whatever. And and it's, you know, definitely falls in with that. Um, I think, you know, I think probably there's a zeitgeistiness around it because, I'm, you know, just known from when Nancy started writing the scripts, Fleabag hadn't been screened at that stage at all, you know. So I think, um, you know, there's something that's zeitgeisty around it. Fleabag was such a great show as well that uh, it's not the worst association to have. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. but it, yeah. it wasn't. This is very much the show in its own terms, though. I, I, I don't want to suggest otherwise, you know. You know, our show, while we have the messy female, our show is really about a family. And uh, yeah. in a way that I don't think Fleabag is. So uh, we have our own yeah. patch in our own space, you know. But um, you definitely was, do. just when you were talking about it being screened on air and the player, we were, looking at how people received it. And we felt there was a difference between the responses from people who'd seen it on telly and people who'd seen it on the player, that the ones who'd seen it on the player got the emotional kick more, um, whereas the one, because they were binging wow. and they were seeing them immediately back to back. Yeah. And the ones on the TV sort of aired more on the com comedy. It's kind of interesting at just how, you know, how the way you see something can affect it, you know? Probably a college thesis in there. If only we had more time, Paddy. Listen, I mentioned Rosie, uh, and a powerful piece of work from a couple of years ago. And for people who don't know, it's Sarah Green struggling largely in her car with her young children because she's nowhere to live and she's going through the horrific rigmarole of literally trying to find a bed for a night. And anyone who's seen it will know of the power of which I'm speaking. But from a, 
technical point of view, and I hope that's not the wrong take to take about a movie that's about homelessness, but so much of it was in the car. I'm wondering, was that a difficult technical shoot? Um, let's, it sort of narrows the palette that you have to work with. Um, but if you kind of work with that and pay attention to that and use that, um, and kind of myself and the DOP, Cahill, we'd kind of set out rules for ourselves at the beginning of a, of a, a film and say, well, what rules do we have about how we shoot this? And if you work within that, it gives great discipline and coherence. And it also lets you, when you decide to break that rule, it has incredible power because you're already working in a very distilled palette. Um, it's not something that you're you're pulling all can pull all the levers and and use all everything at your disposal. You're sort of working in a very narrow way. So when you do push something in t- on top of that, it becomes very significant. So an, an example of that is we decided that we wouldn't observe um, while it was a sort of had a semi documentary feel. We wouldn't observe them in the car from outside. Uh, we would always be try to be with them in a more visceral way. And we just broke it twice. And it's sort of, I think it's the first shot and the last shot break that where we're outside the car looking in. And I, th- I think, hopefully I'm not attributing something that isn't there, but what I think it does at the end of the film is it's the first time where we've been removed from her and we know she's at our most vulnerable moment. And we don't notice it. Why? but we feel we don't want to leave her in this moment. And yeah. I, I think that punctuates the film in a, in, in a sort of powerful way. And if you, were, if you didn't create those rules that, a, that that limited situation in a car gave you, um, you wouldn't get the power of that. We, yeah. What else was in the car? Condensation was something that we had in the car. And we, we sort of made out a, a chart of like, increasing condensation um, levels of condensation corresponded to increasing levels of stress and tension in the family. So the condensation goes away if the pressure isn't there, but in scenes that have more pressure, there's more condensation in the windows. So it's it's kind of simple, but the consistent application of that brings about signals that just people feel for whatever reason. Yeah, that that's fascinating. And, and tell me this: I Roddy Doyle, of course, wrote the script, and he said that he was listening on to the radio one morning, and he heard this woman talking about ringing from her car, is my understanding, and not having anywhere to go that night. I'm wondering when the film came out and and, and got the publicity that it's that it did. Did did that person ever materialize and make contact with you guys? I I never met her, talked to her. Um, and I don't think Roddy did, and and probably I imagine he there's a certain extent that he wouldn't want to because whether he'd become tied in a way, I suppose, sure. in his imagination to 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 do that. But we we sort of went on a, a other process of research to kind of check the veracity of the story and the veracity of the moments, and also for me, I suppose, to be able to carry in some of the feeling and the voice of somebody who's been in that situation onto set with me, I feel is very, very helpful, you know, mm. in, in trying to make something truthful. Um, but I, I think like Roddy initially, I think wrote that script or wrote the first draft very quickly. And I think it was fairly well formed as well. I mean, there's the development process, but I think essentially it was, it was very, well well formed and it had i think because of the speed that with with which he conceived it and wrote it it carries a tension within it which has a slightly thriller like aspect you know yeah um, and i think that's one of the big powers of the film actually that you feel that always you know tell me this i came across an article about you and it's 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 10 years old at this stage so that'll show you the level of my research but it it, it the gist of it was something along the lines of this guy follows his own beast or his own drum or his own path or whatever. And the implication being that after the success of I Went Down, you you took an alternative route that some people 
might not have expected. One of the things you did was you made a movie in Cuba and, and you did some different things that, the, that your career arc hasn't been maybe the expected one. But it's very easy for someone to write that or for me to say it. But it's your life. It's your career. Is that how you see it? Um, well, you kind of, I suppose, all the bits you're saying there are definitely true and they happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making them up. You're not making them up. But I suppose we, we kind of all have a kind of conf- maybe a confabulation or a construction of our story, you know? Yes. That, that gives meaning to the, those events. And I think, you know, when I started off as a director, you know, um, there was so little had been done in Ireland, you know, people hadn't done romantic comedy, people hadn't done a horror film. People, so there was a sort of energy to some extent to fill the spaces and an ambition to fill the spaces that were there. Um, and, and and very little received wisdom in terms of how a career might develop as well. So, yeah. I think, you know, initially, you know, I, I made quite a, a, a sort of pure art house film in a way called Ailsa, and which had very good critical reaction and and won prizes and stuff but i became aware that nobody was really going to see it you know and yeah. i felt somehow it just didn't tally totally with my own i suppose sense of wanting to connect to with people you know or wanting even to connect with the people i knew you know like would the people would my relatives go and see that film would the people that I had affection for go and see that film? Um, and so I, I kind of was wanted to do something that maybe was had a certain cleverness in it as well, but yet was more democratic and open and accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of started off there. I think in the middle of my career, maybe I kind of got lost a little bit and I m- made some choices and made some films that didn't totally represent what I was interested in. And I pulled back at a certain stage and waited. And between sort of, I, th- I made a film in 2008, a horror film, and then I made uh, Viva in 2014. So six years, which is quite a long time not to make yeah. a film. And I did that very deliberately that the next film I made, I wanted to be, it to be Viva. I wanted to be something that was personal and something that, um, that I, I, I felt a lot about, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, and Viva kind of let me, like the tagline in Viva, I think, was find your voice. And in a yeah. way, that's what I was doing again, you know, refinding yeah. my own voice as a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. And it's funny you talk about, you know, there wasn't that much received wisdom because in terms of the Irish scene, it's kind of a new job being, you know, a film director. I mean, do you feel obliged now when you see young filmmakers to ring them up and say, don't make the mistakes I did or follow your own voice? Or maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have that sense. Why should you? But I'm wondering, like, do you get asked to go into colleges and talk to young filmmakers and things like that? You, you do, but even it's more more immediate than that. Let, let's say, you know, as a film director myself and my peers would all probably say the same thing, you know, they never really saw anybody else do it. Yeah. It's like they learned something that they hadn't seen anybody else doing that job, which very few jobs would, would, would have, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, But now there's quite a lot of mentoring schemes. So like you know, in the, in the next job, I'll have two shadow directors. There's a mentoring somebody else in a scheme screen, screen Ireland is doing. And I did that before a few times. So you're seeing those new directors in a, a more structured way, let's say. Yes. And, and I think, you know, hopefully what, what you can give to people or say to people is valuable, but I think even in a situation where if they think you're speaking horseshit or they don't agree with your view on something, even having something to react to, something that becomes a sort of um, paradigm or something or a, or a moment where an orthodoxy or something and somebody can spin off that. Whereas when we were starting, there, w- there wasn't even an orthodoxy. So it was sort of the parameters with which you worked in were very ill-defined. Yeah. And I think that, that is exciting in lots of ways and gave lots of opportunities to do things, for, you know, for a first time or early. Um, but it wasn't, um, 
you know, I think maybe you, you use up a lot of shoe leather learning things that maybe you could have learned far more quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one travels as high as those who don't know where they're going. <laughs> but listen, uh, we've been talking for nearly 20 minutes, so I'm going to have to let you go because you've given me a lot of time. If people only knew how much time you'd given me, but let's not talk of that now. But listen, finally, you know, I've said outlandish things on this show about I Went Down, best Irish movie ever made, maybe the best road movie or certainly one of them. But listen, I don't want to make you blush but i adore that film and i have done since the day i saw it i own it on dvd which i think is the only place you can still watch it is there anything <laughs> it's a very open-ended question but i mean what what's your overriding memory of that because i get the impression you're still terribly fond of it i am very fond of it and i'm very fond of the people i i made it with as well um which is a big part of the thing now for me that you want to work with people that you you like and you enjoy and you get yeah. something out of the, the collaboration. There was a sense of an ambition myself and, and Rob and, and Connor shared mm-hmm. to do something, not just to try a film that hadn't been made before, but to do it with a certain bravura and confidence. Maybe that we totally didn't deserve to have. <laughs> but to sort of to try and not be as self-conscious or whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I think that was one of the things that maybe drove us on a little bit with that film, you know? Um, yeah. but it was a great, uh, you know, there's so many stories around it. And it's kind of funny now. I watched it, I watched it a couple of years, two or three years ago. They had a sort of 25th anniversary screen or something. And I'm struck so much by how much a historical document it had become. And how you make a film with one intention, but actually all sorts of other things come into it. You know, there's telephone boxes, yeah. you know, very few mobile phones, people yeah. smoke in the pubs, there's punks yeah. in the film. Yeah. You know, just like it's a, a different universe now. So it has its own, I think it stands, you know, because the characters are great and the writing is great. And, and the landscapes and the sort of thing, I think, were fresh and new and ex- at the time. So it stands, but yet... It's a historical thing now. And it's not available as things stand anywhere apart from DVD. So so can you get it up on a streamer soon? Because I think more people should see it. Yeah, not no, to tell you how to suck eggs or anything. No, I think we need to do, get it somewhere. And also, I think that the, the DVD isn't well mastered, is my view. Okay, right. Um, so I'd like to really see if we can. I need to find out where the original materials are and all that and have a chat. Yeah. Rob and see whether we, we we try and remaster it, you know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, I've finally, 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 what's next for you then? Uh, I'm doing a, this a second series of The Dry. So Great. I'm doing it and I'm going to do all eight. And Nancy again is writing all eight. And um, we've all the same cast are coming back. And then we've got a couple of new uh, characters who are great. Um so we're sort of excited about that. Uh, so that's starting in a couple of weeks, actually. So that'll brilliant. see you until the end of the year. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, the dry, all eight episodes of season one are available on the RTE player. It is directed in its entirety by the rightly acclaimed Paddy Brannock. Paddy, thanks a million. Thanks a million, John. Take care. Things got pretty dark with my drinking these last few. But I'm on the right track now. And I really want to find a sponsor and a great home group and just, you know, really do the work, you know, to to become the person that I know. Oh, my God, Mrs. McDonald. (laughs) We don't address members directly. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you, Shiv. Welcome. That was Roisin Gallagher outing Norma Sheehan in an AA meeting from the very funny and the very sweet The Dry. And you heard me there talking to its director, Paddy Brannock, who is also, of course, the director of my favourite Irish movie, I think it's fair to say. I went down and I made reference to something there in the interview. We did that twice. The technological gremlins struck in a way that I haven't really experienced before. I'm still a little too upset to go into any more details about it, but let's just say Paddy Bronock let me interview him twice this week, and I'm incredibly grateful. Up next, Dungeons & Dragons hits the big screen. 
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now the big new release of the week is Dungeons and Dragons. Does the world need a movie based on, well it's not technically a board game, it's role playing. I know this because I used to play it back in the day. So I'm very intrigued to see what they've done with Dungeons and Dragons. Delighted to be joined now by broadcaster and film critic Paula Wiseman who has indeed seen it. Hello Paula. Hi John, how are you? Very well. Does the world need a movie based on Dungeons and Dragons? It does. There's a niche for everything. I guess days. there is. There's a I market guess there is. for, you know, there's a lot of boxes to be ticked. Yes. So this is what exactly? Because I haven't seen it and you have. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a pure fantasy. It's a heist movie. Uh, fantasy. It's, it's a bit camp in places. Okay. So know? what's going on exactly? How do we get into the world of Dungeons and Dragons and fighting wizards and things like that? Yeah. So, as you know, as you said, most people are kind of familiar with it, but you might not necessarily have played... Yeah. The game, you know, it, and people are still doing it. In the, yeah, in it's had resurgences years. over the years yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. it never seems to, the popularity never seems to wane. Yeah, with a bit it. like fishing. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know why I Whatever said that. Whatever floats your boat, yeah. as the, you know, pardon the pun. But anyway, yeah, so the story revolves around this guy called Edgin Darvis, played by the amazing Chris Pine. So he's he's on the is amazing in parentheses there, or do you mean amazing I Chris think, Pine? I think he's a good actor. Okay, he's, good. He's, a, he's a good lead. He's a good lead man. Yeah. Yeah. I think certainly has the chops. Yeah, he does. So he's this—he's this guy. He's on the straight and narrow. He's a—he's a good guy. But one day he's out on a mission, and he—he he comes back, and his beloved wife has been murdered. Okay. By a by a red wizard. So fortunately for him, his baby daughter has been secreted in a cupboard. So he he rescues her, but it's it sort of changes changes him as a person. Okay. And so now to make ends meet, he has to turn to <laughs> to, to, to robbery and thievery as okay. a new uh, career choice right. to, to support him and his him and his daughter. So does he then enter a kind of mythical world of wizards and things like that? Yeah, I mean it's all kind of set in that kind of world anyway. So he's got this his mate uh, called Holger. Uh, she's a barbarian played by Michelle Rodriguez, and you know she kind of does what she says on the tin. She's yeah. she's buffed up for this. Uh, for this film, so he he ends up in like a little bit of a gang with the with a sorcerer and a rogue. Let's call him let's call him a rogue, uh, the rogue called Forge. And he so he basically embarks on this life of of petty crime with this alongside this group. And one day on they're out on a mission, um, and he gets double crossed, mm-hmm. and he ends up in prison uh, with Holger. Him and Holger are are captured and thrown into jail for mm-hmm. for two years, which is a long time in. In those days. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And then this very handsome man, whose name I forget, from Bridgerton, is in it as well, Oh, right? Reggae John Page. Yeah. Yes. What's yeah. his role? He's kind of like a, a regent-y figure, um, and he's he's very kind of straight-laced. He's there to advise, and, you know, he does. he's, he's a good fighter as well. Mm-hmm. He's, when called upon, he's uh, he's in there and, you know, mucking in with, with the rest of them. But as a, as a rule, he kind of just... He does his thing and keeps keeps out of the the rough and tumble of oh, it all. Okay, so what what are you thinking? How was it? I loved it. Really, I, I really loved it. Um, Why? You know, each person has their favourite genre and stuff that they love. Mm-hmm. And it, it just ticked a lot of boxes for me. Which boxes? <laughs> oh, it's 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 fast paced, but it's not fast pa- too fast paced that you can't follow the story. Mm-hmm. You get to know the characters, which sometimes you don't really get to know people. Because it's all kind of rushed through. This is this guy. This is this guy. Yeah. That's what they do. Uh, but on this, you're you're actually kind of getting to know the characters and their their ways. Okay. Um, and yeah, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant in this. So Hugh Grant plays who? He again? plays Forge. Right. So he is this rogue figure um, that Edgin gets involved with um, quite early on. But it turns out that Forge is not. Uh, he's he's well. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil. It All too is much. not what it seems. I'm not gonna spoil too much about Forge's role mm-hmm. in the uh, in the film. But he's not a, he's not a good guy. Let's put it that way. Played okay. by Hugh Grant, and yeah. And Hugh Grant's very good because Hugh Grant's oh. having a late blooming. He really career is. Arc. Like Paddington too. I know. Amazing. The Undoing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Incredible. Uh, the one where he's the singer's husband who can't sing. 
Oh, uh, Foster, Foster, Foster Jenkins. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Mrs. Yeah. Foster Jenkins, yeah. yeah. Florence Foster Jenkins. Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes. There, we got there in the end. Yeah. Okay, so Hugh Grant's good in it, and Chris Pine is obviously very good in it. Yeah, he's great, but as I said, Hugh Grant, he totally steals every single scene he's in. He's just, you know, you're laughing. He's just yeah. got, kind of got this little twinkle. And Michelle Rodriguez does her stuff as this beefed up... Yeah. Yeah, she, well, she's a barbarian. She's she's literally just yeah. <laughs> fighting her way. You know, if there's any fighting, like Chris Pine's character, Ed Gein, he's more of a he's a planner. He calls himself a planner. He okay. kind of he works out the plans, and Holger is kind of there too. She's right. the muscle. She's the muscle and does all the and a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously scope for more films, mm-hmm. um, but it's a great. I think it's a, it's a fantastic start okay. to what could be a really, really good franchise. And as I said, it ticks a lot of boxes. So this is going to be another franchise, another multiverse of sorts then, is it? Is that I what they're assume, shaping up for? I would for? assume so, because it's yeah. kind of left open. Okay. It's kind of left open at the end. But like most films, you know, they leave it open at the end, but whether it actually anything actually comes of it okay. is another day's so, work. So despite being left open at the end, it still is a pretty satisfying whole of a movie, though. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's two and a quarter hours. Okay. So it's it's long enough in the, the grand, wrong side of two hours in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. No, but it's not like you you know your three hour. No, John Wick. John or, Wick three yeah. hours. I mean, that was kind of crazy, but yeah. it was just and it was literally just punch up from start to finish. Yes, that but, was last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but this is the, the, the fight choreography is great. Yeah. The CGI with all these characters. Obviously, there's magic involved, yeah. and there's all these mythical characters that you see. And you know they've kind of perfected it. Now. Okay. The, the CGI, you, you you're like this is, is that natural? This doesn't look CGI. Okay. Well, that's 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 good to mm. hear. Yeah. So touch a Lord of the Rings about it because yeah. the CGI in that was very good as well. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it compared. It's a, it's a crossover. Somebody was saying it's a crossover between Guardians of the Galaxy and Game of Thrones. Okay. And does it have that humorous edge to it to yeah. give it that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of as I said, Hugh Grant. Yeah. Literally, anytime Hugh Grant is on the on the screen, you're gonna be you're gonna be laughing or you know. Just the stuff he comes out with. So this is a satisfying movie if you have no interest in role-playing games and yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you don't need to know. I, I personally, I know of Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons, but I've never played it or had any interest in it. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to tick a lot of boxes for okay. a, a lot of people. So what are we going to say stars-wise for Dungeons and Dragons? I would give this... Uh, a strong four out wow. of five. Wow, four out of five. Yeah. I wasn't no, expecting like, this, as the I, song says. I, you know, I think it's like, I know we're only kind of early into the year. I, you know, we're only, only at the end of March now, but, you know, I, I think it's definitely up there with my... Are you saying this is the best film you've seen all year? It's not the best film I've seen this year, but it's up there. Okay, well, I'm, no, it shouldn't have been. I haven't seen it, so I don't want to, you know, <laughs> dissuade you from saying that. But you have to see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to see it. Well, as I say, I played it as a kid, so I'm kind of excited about that. Play the kids as well. Yeah, maybe I shall. Maybe I shall if they'd go with me. <laughs> Let's not get into that now. That is four stars for Dungeons & Dragons, which is in cinemas this Friday, the 31st of March. That was from Paula Wiseman, broadcaster and film critic, Paula, thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Once the dead man is revived, we can ask him five questions, at which point he will die again, mm-hmm. never to be re-revived. Were you killed in the Battle of the Everhorse? Yes. Four more questions, right? Yes. No, 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 that, w- that wasn't for you. Did that count as a question? Yes. Damn it. Only answer when I talk to you, okay? Yes. Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't. Fantastic. Where's the shovel? A clip there from Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. That's its full and correct title, which I don't think we mentioned. So it's Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, which is in cinemas this Friday. And that was as in the 31st of March. And that was Paula Wiseman giving it a very positive review. Up next, Lola. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now I watched a fascinating movie earlier in the week called Lola about two sisters, Thomasina, a.k.a. Tom, and Martha, a.k.a. Mars, in 1941. They've built a time machine of sorts, or a machine, let's call it, simply called Lola, that can intercept radio and TV broadcasts from the future. 
This allows them to listen to iconic music before it's been made, placing bets and knowing what the outcome of those bets will be. And they kind of embrace the music of the 70s and a lot of David Bowie. But with the Second World War escalating, the sisters decide to use the machine for good, to find out information from the future that can help with military intelligence. The machine initially proves to be a huge success, rapidly twisting the fortunes of the Allies against the Nazis. However, things take a slightly darker turn as Lola may be used for more nefarious means by various interested parties. The two sisters, Tom and Martha, are played by Emma Appleton and Stephanie Martini, respectively. It is the feature debut of the acclaimed short filmmaker Andrew Legg, and I'm delighted to say Andrew joins me now. Andrew, hi, how are you? Hi, hello. Andrew, you know, a lot of interviews about movies, certainly on this show, begin with, so tell me where you got the idea for this. And I don't want to be cliched, but I was just really surprised by the story of this movie and how inventive it was. So how did you first dream it up or how did it come to you? Um, I, I think a, a, a lot of it came out of necessity um, in terms of, well, I'd made a few short films and I wanted to go in and make a feature but I wanted to make a feature on my own turf, so to speak. And all my short films, I've been playing around with shooting on Bolexes, um, home processing the film, like I love shooting on film, um, doing stuff kind of with music, doing period stuff, um, and working predominantly in black and white. Um, and so I kind of, and I'd done a short film a few years ago called Chronoscope, which was about a scientist who could see into the past. And we quite liked that as a launching pad <laughs> for a feature. Um, yeah. but, but seeing into the past in a feature film is it, just from plot-wise, it's limiting because you see in the past, but it, you, you can't do so much with story in that. Um, so I kind of changed that to seeing into the future. The chronoscope was a, was a kind of traditional um, Zelig-like um, pseudo documentary with with talking heads, um, uh, kind of archive clips of the characters. So it was presented very much as a documentary. But I wanted, I didn't, I didn't think a kind of like a pseudo documentary would sustain itself over a feature because it's been done so much before. Um, and I love the idea of doing a movie where you're kind of playing with um, that kind of the epistolary novel idea, where the where the character. In the, in the movie, like your protagonist is the storyteller. But like in the novel, the particular novel, it was like, you'd have like diary extracts and stuff like in Dracula. I love the idea that the character was getting like newsreels and home movie footage and different clips and sticking them together to, to, to tell the film. So I guess that's all the form of the film. Um, but it kind of just grew out of that. It was this idea of the scientists, kind of, I like mad scientists. Um, <laughs> And um, so this idea of like a like a, a scientist character, this idea of looking into the future, um, this idea of doing, kind of doing something period, it's kind of stuck together. And then I started writing an idea around that, um, and set it in the war, I guess, because I'm, I'm kind of interested in that period. Um, and then I guess for me, for Lola, what was the breakout breakthrough in terms of the script? Was was the idea that they were getting media from the future, so it wasn't just inform like raw, cold mm -hmm. information like military intelligence, but actually the idea that you're getting like these amazing like you could tune you could tune into like a David Bowie song, and I mm -hmm. love the idea of these women who are in a during the war, so they're like a pre kind of like we have kind of I guess this kind of cultural revolution after the war in terms of like pop culture and everything, and the idea of these women who were brought up in an Edwardian era almost. Uh, being exposed to like punk and stuff. I love that idea. Well, it works remarkably well. And, and tell me this, you know, time travel, which let's call it that genre, it, it, it's very complicated when you start kind of deconstructing it and how taking things from the future might end up changing the future and all that kind of stuff. Was that a, was that a headache when you were writing this? Um, that was okay. I mean, I think, I mean, the general thing is it's going to get worse. Um, yeah. It it uh, that was okay. Like it was kind of like I liked the idea of kind of playing with moments in the Second World War history. Like 
if America had come into the war, or because there was a there was a period in like nineteen forty when the, America would have been a little bit on the edge. There would have been people, there would have been a big movement in America, like America First, which didn't want America to go into this European war and sort of like none of their business and stuff. So if that had, if that had gone the other way, like if people had persuaded Roosevelt not to go into the war, the war probably would have played out very differently. Okay? Or if, mm-hmm. if, if Germany hadn't made the decision to invade the Soviet Union. So I guess there's these big kind of moment things which we kind of played with in the script. But the most difficult thing about the script was, well, two things. It was like doing a kind of period movie like this on a tiny, on a really small budget because it's a first time filmmaker budget. That was difficult. But the second thing was, which is a pain and which I think in this, this points in the movie where we're really pushing it with the audience was trying to motivate the camera because it's, it's meant to be documentary. The, the sisters are meant to be documenting their lives. So the camera always has to have a reason to be in a scene. That was really difficult because it meant that we couldn't write just like any scene we wanted to, like in a real movie, like you can just write a scene you know, whatever you want. Yeah. But it's funny you say that because the limitations of the budget, I think really work in this, uh, because it is shot so cleverly, uh, and so eventive and you have a kind of found footage vibe to it as well that I should mention. And I don't want to go down a kind of cinematographer's nerd hole here, but just, just tell me quickly, what was it shot on? Like it's shot on film, but you also used a Bolex, camera and at some point uh stephanie martini one of the actresses actually holds the camera herself yes so her she plays a character called mars and mm-hmm. mars is the is the documentarian in the movie yeah. sister is the scientist so mars is, is kind of documenting everything so any shot in the movie that you see being operated by the character where it's it's her sister talking kind of to camera was operated by stephanie uh, which wasn't just one or two shots. It was actually loads and loads of shots. Like, like all those scenes between the two women, the, Stephanie is shooting it. Um, we shot it on a Bolex mainly. That's a 16mm camera and it's yeah. winded up. So you wind it up and you get 30 seconds out of it. Um, and it's a beautiful little camera. They're great. They're, they're uh, totally bulletproof. You can throw them around the place. And um, they're just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, gorgeous little cameras. And then we used an Ariflex, um, which like a 16 mil Ariflex with a period lenses, like 1940s lenses on the front of it. And then for the newsreel, there's like newsreel sequences in the movie as well. Like the sequence with the girl, you really got me. They were all shot on 35 mil. Um, and for some of them, we used a, a Newman Sinclair, which is a 1930s newsreel camera, which is a beautiful thing, which you wind up and you get about two minutes out of. And it's what all the yeah. newsreel camera people would have used during the war yeah um, so yeah we wanted to do it as authentically as possible um, yeah, well it, it certainly works and you you mentioned because people haven't seen the movie but you mentioned you really got me there's a great use of that you really got me where uh, Mar mars martha sings that the music is terrific in it and neil hannon did the music for the movie w- was it hard or easy to get neil of the Divine Comedy on board for this? Um, Neil, was, Neil was amazing. So what happened with that was Alan Marr, my producer, like like about six months before we were making the movie, or maybe longer, like when we were getting into the kind of financing thing, um, suggested Neil Hannon. And it hadn't even occurred to me. And I just thought it was brilliant because I love his music. Yeah. Um, and initially, we, Neil, we just pitched that he'd write the, the, the alternate universe fascist pop songs. But, um, but Neil was like, he wanted to do the score, which is even better, um, yeah. which worked really well because the two women in the movie are, are musicians. So they're playing music um, on kind of in the 1940s, but they're playing music that they've written, but inspired by music that they've heard on Lola. So there was like a few different strands for, for the music for Neil. He had to do, um, he had to write music in the 40s that was inspired by kind of um, pop and glam rock and stuff from like the 60s, 70s, but on 1940s things. And then using instruments that the sisters had built themselves. So they've got like a 19, like a homemade 1940s synthesizer with like big balls in it and stuff. So mm. it was, I think it was really fun for Neil because he could really play with like, with, blending different genres of music and putting them together. Um, yeah. 
And then there's also what you referred to there. Uh, we rearranged Keen Boyle and Neil did a rearrangement of um, "Girl, You Really Got Me" with a 1940s swing band, um, which is which is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's a pure alternate universe fascist um, pop songs, which come later in the movie. Yes, alternative universe fascist songs, uh, and they work very well in it. And and if you're ever going to have alternative fascist universe songs, they sound like ones that would be on the money. And listen, not to trouble, you know, defamation lawyers or anything, but there's a small bit of footage of David Bowie. Uh, were you able to get the rights for that? Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't just outed you on air. No, because I imagine that must be tricky to do. It was difficult. Um it, it's, so we had to get the rights to Space Odyssey and to mm. the music video. And I didn't, look, lucky for me, I didn't have to deal with that. It was John Wallace and Alan Moore, our producers, and I think it was. It took about six months of, yeah. kind of negotiation. I think the main thing for, for the Bowie estate is, uh, is the context of how you're using the music. And yeah. I guess first, because the movie is kind of a little bit of a love letter to, to you know, to that music and to Bowie and everything, like, it probably was an easier pitch than if we were doing like a biopic or something where I think it's more yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or a superhero movie or whatever. Well, look, Andrew, in closing, I, I just want to say I was I was so surprised by this film. And I just want to give listeners a sense of it because when we're talking about Bolex cameras and things like that, it might, I don't want people to think this is a, a an exercise in, in style over substance or anything like that because I think it's just 120 minutes or just shy of thereabouts. This is a gripping story about a gorgeous portrait of sisterhood uh, and also science fiction and also, you know, geopolitics in the 40s and what life would have been like if the war had gone a different way. It's it's a beguiling, fascinating story and it's it's brilliantly told. It really is. And I didn't see it at the diff, but my, my sources tell me that it got a great reaction at, at, at the Dublin Film Festival recently. Were, were you in an audience and people applauded? We did, yeah, I, was, I did a Q&A with Stephanie, actually. Um, Stephanie Martini, who plays Morris. Uh, it was fun, yeah. It has, it seems to, it's, yes, it's good. It, it's definitely, it's, it's not a geek film. Like we're, no. like, we're using a lot of geek technology, making it and like having a lot of fun with that and home processing film. But I, I, like always like tread the script and filmmaking and edit, like we're always trying to make like a fun story, like something. Yeah. Not like yeah. an archive film. I suppose it is kind of an archive film, but something that was actually fun. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. Well, 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 mission accomplished. So Lola is in cinemas from April the 7th and it is a great watch and one of the most inventive things I've seen in a long time. I've been talking to its director and writer, Andrew Legg. Andrew, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. But Lola didn't just show us the world's wonders. She also showed us its horrors. The Nazis had torn through Europe. Paris had fallen... Dunkirk had been evacuated and now Hitler had set his sights on Britain. The Blitz would claim thousands of lives over the coming months. Lola could no longer be just ours. A clip there from the highly inventive film Lola, which is in cinemas from April 7th. And you heard me talking to its director, Andrew Legg. And uh, I, I meant everything I said to him, really unusual, inventive, pleasing movie and great music by Neil Hannon. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, I'm bringing you a special. I'm looking at the best comedies of all time in the company of Aoife Barry and Chris Wasser. So we're going to have fun with that. Just something a little different for Easter. In the meantime, I'll remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead.